It's time for the question you knew I was eventually going to ask. Did you get your flu shot? Every fall as influenza starts to spread, healthcare providers start campaigns encouraging members to get a flu shot. Often drop-in locations are arranged to make it easy for families to stop by together. Employers also try to encourage flu shots for employees by offering them on site. Some schools are even joining in now offering flu shots on site. Clearly, institutions that have a stake in our health, well-being, and productivity have decided the flu shot is a worthwhile investment. However, many people seem ambivalent about the flu shot. Every year when the flu shot comes up, I hear someone claim that it made them sick, and so what is the point? Others talk about it not being very effective, or that it doesn't cover the strain of flu going around that year, and so it's just not worth the trouble. So as the leaves turn to fall, we will all once again be making a decision about the flu shot. What should we base that decision on? I'm your host, Matt Fox, from the Boston University School of Public Health, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health researchers, health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Today, we're going to be talking about the flu vaccine. To do so, I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Hearn from the University of California at Berkeley School of Public Health in Epidemiology and Associate Dean for Research at the same School of Public Health. Now, you remember, Jen, from our episode on community immunity. Welcome back to the podcast, Jen. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. We also have a guest with us today who's an expert on the topic. Jen, can you introduce our guest? Certainly. Um, today, we'll be talking with uh, Dr. Arthur Reingold, and he's the head of Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics here at the School of Public Health uh, at UC Berkeley. And Art focuses on infectious disease epidemiology. Um, he has expertise in a really broad range of topics in this area, but today we'll be drawing on his expertise specifically in vaccine-preventable diseases. Um, and as a couple of examples of work he's done in this area, Art has served on the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as well as on the Strategic Advisory Group of Experts um, on Immunization, and this is for the World Health Organization. So we're hoping through our conversation with Art today to understand some more details uh, about the flu vaccine um, and hopefully get some information to help everyone make better informed decisions uh, about whether to get the flu shot for themselves and for their families. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Art. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> Um, so why don't we start out with some basics about the flu. Um, in terms of the flu as a disease, um, how would you describe it in terms of the type of infection? Well, as many people know, influenza is a respiratory infection. It's caused by influenza virus, and there are several flavors. We typically call them A, B, and C. Only influenza A and B are really serious, uh, uh, cause serious illness in people. Uh, it's spread through the respiratory route, through coughing and sneezing, uh, largely through large droplets. Um, and of course, in the Northern Hemisphere, it occurs every winter, um, uh, which is why we call it flu season. Uh, I, I think what's important for people to try and distinguish is influenza from the common cold and other respiratory infections. We, we all get uh, the common colds and, and respiratory infections, and typically they're mild and self-limited, even if they're irritating. Uh, influenza, uh, on the other hand, can be lethal, particularly in the very young, uh, in the very old, and the immunosuppressed. So uh, 
lumping flu together with respiratory infections or the common cold, I think, can sometimes uh, mislead people. And so you, you said that uh, flu can be quite serious and quite different from, from the common cold. I think people often think of the flu as something that's unpleasant, uh, but not overly serious. So, so what are the real differences between flu and the common cold? Well, uh, the, the primary problem is that influenza virus uh, can cause a severe infection, particularly involving the lung, uh, resulting in primary uh, influenza pneumonia or secondary bacterial pneumonias or a host of other complications. It's associated with an increased risk of, of uh, serious heart problems uh, and uh, congestive heart failure, exacerbations of asthma. So influenza really uh, is uh, capable of causing severe illness and death in a way that the common cold is not. So sometimes we'll, you'll hear someone talk about, uh, oh, I got a stomach flu. Oh, there's a stomach flu going around. Is there actually such a thing as a stomach flu? Uh, well, uh, when people talk about the stomach flu, they're, they're talking about what we would call gastroenteritis. Uh, they have an acute uh, syndrome with vomiting and diarrhea and abdominal pain. It, most of the time, it's caused by uh, f uh, food poisoning, effectively, uh, an infection they acquired from food or from uh, fecal-oral contamination. Um, and, and that's not caused by influenza virus. So stomach flu uh, is a misnomer. Uh, it's true in very small children with the flu, they can sometimes have a little bit of diarrhea, but stomach flu is really nothing to do with influenza. And I think that's a really hard uh, myth to break. I think people really do think of, of stomach flu as being something related to the flu. Um, now, the other thing I wanted to ask you was you said that uh, certain members of the population are, are more at risk for these severe consequences than others. Can you, can you say a bit more about who's most at risk and and, and who suffers the severest consequences? Sure, I think first of all, it's important to say that influenza virus is readily transmissible from person to person uh, through the respiratory route. And, and in fact, uh, influenza infections are most common in young children, particularly school-age children. So they're the ones who transmit the virus within the community. They transmit it to their younger siblings, they transmit it to their parents, to the elderly, but, but they typically have a fairly benign self-limited course and they get better. It's, it's unusual for a school-age child, uh, a, a healthy school-age child to have a, a serious life-threatening bout of influenza. So while much of the influenza transmission occurs in healthy children, uh, it's a serious problem when it's transmitted to a young child, a child under the age of six to to 12 months, and to older people, particularly older people with underlying conditions like heart disease, congestive heart failure, um, and, and, and problems like that. And particularly when they're infirm and living in a, in a, a group setting such as a nursing home. So those people are the ones most likely to be hospitalized, to have a severe influenza uh, illness, and to die. So you've, you've talked now about uh, school-age children transmitting this to others in the family. Could you uh, talk a little bit more about exactly how, what we know about how flu is transmitted between people? 
Sure, it's transmitted entirely through coughing and sneezing through the respiratory route. There's some issues about whether it's primarily through what we call large droplets versus aerosols. Uh, large droplets are what I can, if, if, I, if you've ever seen a picture of a sneeze, you'll see this sort of ocean of little particles in the air. Uh, it's actually a mix of, of very small aerosol particles that can remain suspended in the air and larger droplets, which gravity pulls to the ground. So I can only hit you with a droplet uh, from about three to four feet away. Um, but aerosols can stay in suspended in the air for, you know, potentially uh, an hour or two. So it's probably transmitted partly through these larger droplets and partly through these finer uh, aerosols, but basically it's transmitted by coughing and sneezing uh, and people coming in contact with the respiratory secretions of an infected person. And, and many of our listeners may have uh, been hearing about a measles outbreak that's been going on and been hearing about this droplet transmission. Is, is this the same mode of transmission that a, a virus like measles would have? Well, just to clarify, yes and no. So actually measles is transmitted almost entirely through aerosols, through the tiny particles that can remain suspended in the air for hours. Uh, and, and influenza is probably transmitted largely through these larger droplets. Uh, but to the average person, it's still all that stuff that comes mm -hmm. out when you cough and sneeze. And if I, if, if I could just follow up on that. So uh, we know, I mean, influenza is clearly... Um, very transmissible, but it, it sounds like what you're saying is that might explain why it's less transmissible than measles? Well, that's a complicated question. The, the, how, how transmissible a virus is depends uh, in part on the characteristics of the agent. Um, and if it's something that's through the air, through an aerosol, it, it depends on temperature, it depends on humidity. Mm. Um, so it's, it's largely a characteristic of the infectious agent. And it's true that measles is much more infectious than influenza, but influenza is certainly quite capable of being transmitted easily from one person to another. Um, so when we started off, you talked about there being a flu season. Um, certainly we all uh, at least perceive that flu is much more common at some times of the year. Why is it that flu follows a seasonal sort of a pattern while other infections, HIV for example, don't appear to have that sort of seasonality? So first of all, when we talk about seasonality for flu, it's, we're largely talking about uh, what happens in temperate climates, uh, such as the United States. Um, and in temperate climate countries in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, influenza peaks during our winter. In the Southern Hemisphere, in Australia, for example, it peaks in their winter, which is during our summer. So it clearly has a distinct winter peak in temperate climates. In tropical countries, it's much more uh, 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 well, there are different patterns in tropical countries than in, in temperate uh, countries. But, but I think if you ask the average grandmother or even average physician why influenza peaks in the winter, uh, they'll tell you it's because we're all huddled inside because it's cold and it's snowy and we're coughing and sneezing on each other. And, and that obviously can contribute, but it clearly cannot be the primary reason why influenza peaks in the winter. And I say that because there are other respiratory infectious agents that peak in the spring, some that peak in the fall, and even one that peaks in the summer. So it's got much more to do with the specific characteristics of the infectious agent. And again, how long it 
basically survives at a given temperature and humidity. But influenza virus uh, is, is adapted to and, and basically transmitted uh, when, the, when the temperature and humidity that we have in the winter uh, it, it is present. And if you ask the question, where does it go in the summer? Where does influenza go on vacation during the summer? The answer <laughs> is uh, people have been wondering about that for at least 75 years and it remains somewhat unclear. <laughs> and so, so what you're saying though is that it's not as I was told as a kid because I went outside with wet hair. <laughs> so that's another common thing your grandmother believed that uh, mm -hmm. wet feet and wet hair uh, yep. increase your risk of flu or, or, or respiratory infections. If I'm not mistaken, the U.S. military did actual studies where they really? intentionally have people uh, uh, have wet hair or, or be outside with, with wet feet. Uh, and uh, my recollection is those studies uh, pretty much uh, uh, debunk uh, that theory entirely. So what your grandmother told you as a child about, about that is probably uh, what we, in, my, in the Yiddish terminology would be a bubba miser. Oh yes, uh, <laughs> I got many of those. Wives tale. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a common belief. Uh, so let's say, you know, someone heads into the fall and you know, they, they, they have one of these notions about the flu vaccine not working, they don't bother to get it. What are the chances that that person is going to get the flu that year? Well, so for, first of all, you know, influenza, like a lot of infectious illnesses, uh, exists across the spectrum. We have many asymptomatic infections. Uh, we have uh, symptomatic mild infections where people don't seek care. We have a lot of people going to outpatient settings. And then we have the tip of the iceberg, which is people getting hospitalized and dying. So we know a fair bit about that spectrum. Um, uh, we know that in the United States, typically in a given flu season, somewhere in the range of 20 to 60,000 people will die of influenza each flu season. We know that there are several hundred thousand hospitalizations for influenza. Uh, we, we know that there are several million uh, healthcare visits in the outpatient setting for influenza. Um, if we ask what proportion of the population gets infected, uh, the evidence is, of course, it varies by age, but it's, it's probably in the range of, of, of something like 3 to 10% uh, of the population will acquire influenza virus infection during a given season. But, you know, many people have a mild illness, et, et cetera. And so you said earlier that uh, there were parts of the population who were most at risk for the most severe consequences. Are those the same populations that are most at risk for getting flu or do, do the populations who are most at risk for getting infected differ? Well, as I alluded to before, they do differ and it's, it's primarily school-aged children who, who transmit the virus and who get sick with influenza at, at a higher rate than other age groups, um, but they rarely get hospitalized and, and fortunately very rarely die of influenza. So it's uh, when you look at hospitalizations and deaths, it's primarily the very young and the very old, particularly nursing home uh, residents. So if we're thinking about vaccination as one strategy to reduce risk of getting the flu, are there, um, are there other strategies that are, that are known to be effective or is that really, is the vaccine really what we have to work with? 
So let me start by answering the last question, which is that the influenza vaccine is an imperfect tool. Uh, it's not as good a vaccine as we would like, but it's actually the best tool we have for preventing morbidity and mortality from influenza. Um, and so if you ask, what are the other tools we have? I'll go through them and tell you something about them. One of them, of course, is we want people to cover their cough or their sneeze. Uh, second, their elbow, right? <laughs> preferably coughing or sneezing into their elbow rather than into their well, hand. Yes. That's can, I, can, can I ask you a follow-up question on that? Because I'm actually quite curious. Is there is there good evidence that that uh, covering your cough is actually effective? As far as I know, there's virtually no evidence, uh, uh, solid epidemiologic evidence. But but um, uh, you know, it, it logically it, makes sense. It, it makes sense that it will reduce yeah. that cloud of, of droplets and, and aerosols somewhat. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we want people to cover their cough or their sneeze. Uh, when people are sick, we would, it would be better if they stay home from school or from work until they're better. But of course, that's very difficult, particularly for people who don't have paid uh, uh, um, sick leave. So many workers don't get paid if they don't go to work. Um, so, so we don't make that easy for people to do. And we academics are as guilty as anyone. We go to mm -hmm. work when we're sick. We send our kids to school when they're sick often. Uh, I've done that. Um, so, so, but, but, you know, staying home when you're sick uh, can help reduce transmission. Uh, there is a general recommendation in many places for good hand washing. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to tell you, I'm a skeptic about um, whether hand washing reduces transmission of flu virus, but I'm considered somewhat of an outlier on that. Hand washing is a very important public health tool for preventing diarrhea, for preventing respiratory infections in general. I think the evidence that it reduces transmission of influenza virus is actually not very good, um, but we want people to wash their hands uh, regularly. Um, we also, in theory, if we had a large pandemic going on, we would do what we call other social distancing measures like uh, 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 closing airports, uh, canceling World Cup games, doing things no. enormously unpopular and economically uh, impactful. Um, obviously, we try not to do those things, canceling flights and, and the like. Um, but they're just a limited number of things we can do other than vaccination, and and they're all imperfect. So maybe we could we could switch a little bit to actually talking about uh, the vaccine. Um, you know, when it comes to vaccines, people generally get concerned about it and talk a fair bit about side effects. Are there known side effects associated with the flu vaccine that people should be prepared for? The answer to that is yes. And I guess as somebody who gets a flu shot every year, as somebody who strongly promotes vaccination in general. I think that first of all, it, it's, it's important to point out that nothing in life is risk-free. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, getting in my car this morning had risks, eating a meal in a restaurant has risks, everything has risks. So uh, we know quite well what the risks associated with, with flu vaccine and other vaccines are. Uh, and I would argue strongly that the benefits outweigh the risks, but but no vaccine, no medicine, nothing is completely risk-free. So uh, in general, a flu shot um, will, can produce uh, discomfort, some pain, uh, it can persist for a day or two in the injection site. Uh, some people uh, can develop a bit of a fever, uh, although that's much less common. 
Um, and fundamentally, there really are no other substantial risks. Uh, if someone doesn't inject it properly, there can potentially be a problem related to poor injection practice uh, locally uh, in that part of the body. But basically, influenza vaccine is, is quite safe. And so when people say that they, they got a flu shot and it gave them the flu, uh, which I hear very often mm -hmm, from do I. medically qualified individuals such as nurses, that's simply not possible. Okay, so uh, it's quite possible that after they got a flu shot, they became ill. But mm -hmm. it, it's either not the flu or basically um, they got the flu despite the flu shot, mm -hmm. not because of the flu shot. So I think, you know, of course, when people are getting vaccinated, uh, some things will happen to them in the next day, two days, four days, whatever. And it's easy to conclude that, well, I got a flu shot and I got sick. It must have been the flu shot that made me sick. Well, and just to follow up on that, I mean, it seems that uh, when there is a, a large outbreak of, of flu, that's when people run, you know, concerns to get a, a flu shot. And at that point, they may have already been infected and it may be too late. And therefore, they associate those two together. Yes, as I said, it's certainly possible that, in fact, as you said, they're incubating the flu or, or, or maybe they, the immunity in response to the vaccine hasn't had a chance to build up yet. That typically takes three to, to seven days. Uh, after you receive uh, the, the vaccine. And as we've already uh, alluded to, but not spoken about yet, uh, the effectiveness of a flu shot is not 100%. So uh, some people will get the flu despite having a flu shot. Mm -hmm. So when, uh, you know, I get my notice from the doctor that the flu shot clinics are open, is, is there sort of a best time to go down there and get that vaccine? Or uh, is there a range of time you'd recommend? So it turns out that's a very complicated question. Um, first of all, we typically, because the companies basically are told which strains to put in the vaccine in February, and they've got about six months in which to make up 100, 200 million doses of vaccine, the vaccine isn't even available in large quantities until basically early to late fall, uh, September or thereabouts. Um, and there, there's certainly an interest in getting people vaccinated once the vaccine is available, but there's generally a preference to wait until a little closer to when we think the flu season is, is going to begin. Um, and, and so uh, I would say it's often the case we don't start seriously vaccinating large numbers of people until uh, October. Uh, and if you ask what difference does it make, it, it turns out that there's some evidence that, that the immunity induced by the flu vaccine wanes over the course of a single season wow. and, and, and may not be as uh, high in March as it is in November if you get a shot in October. And that's one of the imperfections of the vaccine. Interesting. And you, sorry, just to follow up on that, you said that uh, the companies are told which strains of the flu to, to, to generate the vaccine based on. Who's telling them? So uh, in the United States, uh, there's a, an expert group uh, that's assembled by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I think they meet in early February in Washington. And they review data both about what strains were circulating 
last year in the Northern Hemisphere, what strains are circulating in the past six months in the Southern Hemisphere, and then make an, if you will, an educated guess about what strains will circulate the next winter in the Northern Hemisphere. And then they, uh, we now have a quadrivalent vaccine with, with uh, two what we call influenza uh, A types, A and, uh, H1N1 and H3N2, and two influenza B lineages. And so we have a quadrivalent vaccine with, with two A and two B strains. And the, 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 a, a guess is made about which of those strains will be most likely to circulate the next flu season. And, and the vaccine manufacturers are given that information and, in fact, specific uh, seed strains with which to work. And if you ask how good a guess are we making, uh, the answer is uh, the experts get it right about 90% of the time. Oh, wow. That's, That's quite good. And so, so is, is the guess, though, the reason why the flu shot is more or less effective in a particular year, or does it have to do with other things that relate to the actual production of the vaccine itself? So that's a really complicated question. Um, <laughs> so first, let, let me say that because there are four strains in the vaccine, the effectiveness of each of those strains can vary. It might be higher for one strain than for another. Uh, secondly, it depends on your age and the efficacy or effectiveness might vary depending on whether you're very young or middle-aged or very old. Uh, we have different vaccines, including high-potency vaccines for old people like me. Uh, we, we sometimes have live attenuated vaccines. So uh, it also, as I've already said, depends whether you measure it early in the season or later mm -hmm. in the season. So it's a complicated issue. Um, but the one other problem we have is that for much of the vaccine we use, it's produced in hand zines. So this is a technology developed in the 1940s and 50s to grow the virus uh, in uh, the kind of eggs you would eat for breakfast. Um, and I, my understanding is it takes about one egg to produce one dose of vaccine. Oh, wow. So if you want 100 million doses, you need 100 million eggs. Um, and the, but what that means is that in order to, for the virus to grow in the egg, it needs to be adapted so it doesn't kill the egg and, and, and reproduces in the, in the egg. And we think that sometimes in the process of adapting a strain to grow in eggs, it may actually genetically change from what's going to be circulating in the population. Wow. And, and, and so it's a very complicated business. Increasingly, these vaccines are made in using modern cell-based technology. Uh, where that process is less likely to occur. So you'd think it's an easy question to answer what the effectiveness is each year, but in fact, it, it varies enormously depending on age and time of season and which strains and whether you have underlying illnesses and a host of variables. So, so it, it's never anywhere close to 100%, which is, of course, what we would like. Um, but, but it does, does depend on some of these subgroups. That's fascinating. So you've talked about how effectiveness varies between people. Uh, I'm curious, you know, and you also mentioned how 
you know, there's sort of the tip of the iceberg group who end up in the hospital, then there are other folks who are going to visit the doctor, and then there are uh, people who will just deal with their illness at home who may never make contact with the medical system, and other people who may not even realize they're ill because it's so mild. I'm curious, given that sort of range of experience, how on earth do we monitor how effective a vaccine is in a given year? So there are networks of sites funded primarily by the Centers for Disease Control that are funded each year to do uh, uh, effectiveness studies. But these are not randomized trials because it's not possible to do randomized trials of efficacy each year. Uh, I'd be happy to explain why that is, but basically it's not possible. Um, so uh, the vaccine is released based on safety and immunogenicity data. Uh, given to large numbers of people, and then vaccine effectiveness is monitored uh, largely at this point using what are called a, a test negative design, which from my perspective is simply a case control study uh, in which people coming into the hospital or coming into a clinic, depending on the network, are tested for influenza. And if they meet a clinical case definition and have a positive influenza test, they're a case. If they have a negative influenza test, they're a control, uh, and their vaccine history is obtained, along with lots of information about potential confounding factors. And then you can calculate the, the, the vaccine effectiveness, one minus the odds ratio for epidemiologists times 100%. Uh, and then you can do that for different subgroups. You can do it for the different strains of the virus. You can do it at different time points. But it takes a huge effort with multiple sites enrolling uh, cases and controls on an ongoing basis throughout every flu season. It's a, it's a clever design though, the test negative design, because it, it seems to me that essentially what you're saying is let's compare people who got the flu to people who uh, got something that looked like the flu but wasn't the flu, and so those people should have very similar characteristics in terms of their care-seeking behaviors, which I think is quite neat. Well, that's exactly the major advantage of using the test negative design. It effectively uh, matches uh, on care-seeking behavior. Um, of course, these are often done within a, a, a group like Kaiser Permanente, where, where uh, other things are often uh, fairly similar among the cases and the controls. But, but these studies collect as much information as possible about potential confounding factors and, you know, use appropriate statistical methods to, to control for, for, for all those potential confounding factors. And so one of the things that people often ask me about the flu vaccine is, uh, why is it that we don't just have one vaccine that, that covers all the strains? And I get that, and I'm covered for everything, and I don't have to worry about it. Why, why couldn't we have something that is more comprehensive? Well, first of all, I would uh, cut to the chase. Uh, people are now spending a huge amount of money to try and come up with what's called a universal flu vaccine. So the NIH is investing heavily in this. The Gates Foundation is investing. Other foundations are. So I think there's now a recognition that we need to invest more to get to that point. But I would point out, first of all, there are a lot of infectious diseases where we don't know how to make a vaccine. So HIV is one of them. Yeah. We don't really have an effective TB vaccine. We have only an imperfect malaria vaccine. So the reality is uh, immunologists haven't figured out how to do this yet. Uh, and one of the problems is that influenza virus e evolves and, and mutates very quickly. 
It's a very labile virus, unlike the measles virus, which is extremely stable. So the virus is constantly evolving. Uh, if you think about uh, uh, um, exchanging genetic information as simply another way of talking about having sex, uh, influenza viruses have sex with each mm -hmm. other and exchange genetic information readily. So the virus is, uh, is a slippery character and it's so far not been possible to make a vaccine that's effective against all flu viruses. And if I could just follow up on that, do are there, if I get vaccinated with a, a strain that is not currently circulating, but is similar genetically to, to one of the strains that is in the vaccine, do I get any kind of protection or is it really, it's gotta be specific to that particular strain that's circulating? Well, that's another really complicated question. <laughs> uh, so the extent to which you know, uh, you get any sort of uh, protection against related strains um, is, is highly variable and, and somewhat uh, unclear. So mm. there might be some cross protection against closely related strains, but, but the, the further away the strain has evolved, the less likely uh, that is to be very uh, useful. So some years I hear people muttering about how the nasal form of the vaccine is, is maybe not effective this year, or maybe it's not as effective as the shot. Um, and I checked the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and they don't have a recommendation on the mode of uh, the vaccine. Do you have any uh, insight into that? Is there a better mode for getting the vaccine? The quick answer is that, you know, a number of years ago, one or more companies developed what's called live attenuated influenza vaccine, LAIV. Um, it was the one, the, the primary brand in the United States called Flumist. Um, and uh, the initial studies showed that in uh, children, uh, it, it was actually more efficacious uh, than the shot. And so the ACIP at that time gave it what's called a preferential recommendation and said it should be preferred over the flu shot. Uh, it also did away with the fear of needles and disposal of injection equipment and the like. Um, and while I was on the ACIP, in fact, uh, you know, there was evidence from at least two consecutive flu seasons that for some reason, LAIB basically had no effectiveness um, mm. at all. And, and so for two years, uh, ACIP did not recommend LAIV for anyone. Uh, and, and the companies went back and did some more work on LAIV. And that is now back in, in use. It uh, uh, is an option for people who don't want to get the, an injection. Um, but um, I, I would say that as best we know at the moment, uh, they're probably fairly similar in terms of their efficacy. Um, but of course, every year we study it and make comparisons. So I, don't, I haven't seen results for the 2018-19 uh, flu season yet. I, I'm hopeful that will come back because I think that would really uh, encourage a lot more people to, to take it. Um, now, I, I'm wondering whether if I am a kind of person who is really religious about this and goes every year and gets my flu shot, um, you know, as I'm supposed to, does, uh, if, if the, they've guessed wrong this year, uh, but it just so happens that, that one of the strains circulating this year is what was in the vaccine last year, do I get any protection? Or another way of saying that would be, is there sort of a cumulative effect of getting it year, you know, is, is the getting my flu shot every year helping me more than just getting it occasionally? Well, that's another really complicated question. <laughs> 
That's um, the only kind we have. <laughs> <laughs> Influenza is really a complicated uh, issue in terms of vaccines. So you're asking a really important question, which is basically, um, does having a flu shot the prior year mm -hmm. uh, change its effectiveness when you get it this year? Or does yeah. getting it each of the last five years change its effectiveness this year? Or do, do you have any residual protection from a shot you got two years ago or a year ago? And the answer is the evidence is inconsistent. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's, there's some evidence uh, that having had a, a flu shot the prior year or previous years uh, ha has associated with an increased level of protection. Uh, when you get a flu shot this year, there's some evidence that actually reduces <laughs> <laughs> the effect wow. of the flu shot you get this year. And I would say that, that that's a, a, an unanswered question. Um, it, it, exactly what the effect of, you know, uh, cumulative flu shots is on, on the effect of the shot you get this year. You'd think that's something we know, but, mm -hmm. but in fact, it's, it's, the data are inconsistent. Interesting. Um, so this past season, I'm pretty sure I got the flu and I had gotten my flu shot, uh, but I thought maybe it was a little less severe than I might have expected. You know, I did have the fever, I had the aches, but it didn't go on as long as I would have expected it to for the flu. Could that be attributable to the protection I did get from the shot? I, I think the, the most likely answer to that is yes, but, but the best evidence we have of partial protection uh, is that if you if you look at people hospitalized with influenza and how severely ill they are, and of course now we're talking about people who are all fairly sick, sick enough to be hospitalized, but among those people is there evidence that previously vaccinated people are less likely to die or less likely to be admitted to the intensive care unit, uh, which are the easiest markers of severity to measure, the answer is yes, there is evidence that there's uh, some partial protection against more severe flu. Now, whether that translates into someone like you in the community uh, having a, a slightly milder case than you would have had otherwise, I actually don't know of any studies uh, that look at that. There, there may be some, but, but I think the answer is it's, it's certainly plausible that there's partial protection. Uh, we, we know that that's true for some other vaccines uh, like a pertussis uh, vaccine, whooping cough vaccine, but I wouldn't want to extrapolate too much from from very different vaccines. Uh, now, earlier in the in the podcast uh, series that we've been doing, we had a whole episode on herd immunity, basically the idea that if lots of us get the get a vaccine, that we reduce the chances that anybody who is not vaccinated is going to get it, just because they are far less likely to ever come into contact with somebody and transmission could eventually be stopped. Is that, is that something that we can think about and try to take advantage of with flu vaccine or is it just fundamentally different? So first of all, I, I hope in that, in that conversation it was pointed out that herd immunity, first of all, is only an issue for things transmitted from one person to another. So for something like tetanus, which you get from soil, there is no such thing as herd immunity. I am pretty um, sure we did say specifically that example. Good, okay. Uh, but furthermore, uh, herd immunity requires different levels of protection depending on how infectious the agent is. So for measles, for example, you need a much higher level of immunity in the population than you do for something like influenza because measles is so much more transmissible. But, but having said that, um, the answer is there's 
very good evidence from Japan uh, that herd immunity can be very important in influenza. And, and Japan used to have a program where they vaccinated every school child every year against flu. And, and they have very good evidence that um, that, that was protecting uh, older people uh, and, and, and young children too young to vaccinate. That basically by reducing transmission in school children, they were reducing transmission outside of that group to other people. So we know that herd immunity uh, can occur for flu, um, but I, I, you know, uh, exactly what proportion of the pop of which populations need to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity for flu? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. Interesting. So I know uh, from conversations around the hall that you've been involved in a study that's bringing the flu vaccine into some local schools uh, in the Bay Area. Um, what can you tell us about that project and whatever you've learned as it's as it's been carried out? So we've been, had very generous funding from a foundation uh, that was quite interested in trying to improve influenza vaccination among school children. And, and while we initially proposed a, a cluster randomized trial uh, for, for various political and, and, and ethical and other reasons, that was decided that, that was not going to be possible. So we've been uh, looking at uh, giving flu shots, well, first the flu mist when that was available, then flu shots. Um, uh, in the Oakland schools um, for free through a program called Shoe the Flu. Uh, and, and, and in comparison, looking at schools in a neighboring in, uh, air community in Contra Costa County. Um, and and um, so we've been doing that now. This is our fourth year. Um, and there certainly are precedents for that in other communities. I, I should say, by the way, that other countries uh, do a lot of school-based immunization, uh, for, particularly for the human papillomavirus vaccine, because if you want to reach school children, they, if you want to reach school-age children, they're typically in school. Um, we hope so. Uh, well, in many countries, they are anyway. Um, in the United States, we have not done as much with school-based immunization, and, and there are various reasons for that, but, but um, there, there has been prior experience delivering flu vaccine through schools, so this is built on some, some prior studies suggesting you can, you can do it and it, it, will, it will have an effect. Uh, and uh, so we, you know, basically offer free flu vaccine through the open public schools of children of certain age groups. Um, and we're now in the midst of a very deep look at what the impact has been not only on flu vaccination coverage, but also on uh, hospitalizations for influenza in the community across all ages to see how much herd protection there has been, uh, as well as direct protection. Um, my colleagues here in the department, Jack Colford and Jade Benjamin Chung, are leading that, that um, uh, very uh, intensive look at the impact. And uh, we're, we're pretty optimistic that for the, the last two of the four years when the vaccine had demonstrated effectiveness, that we're going to be able to demonstrate some pretty substantial impact on important health outcomes in the community. Uh, we, we know we've uh, improved influenza vaccine coverage in kids, um, but, but obviously what we'd like to show is that there's been an impact on, on important health outcomes. And, and I'm assured we'll have all the data totally analyzed by January of 2020. That's fantastic. So 
So if I was to if I was to try and sort of summarize things, I, I guess I would say that uh, that the flu vaccine is uh, not capable of actually causing the flu in anyone. That uh, it's the best tool that we actually have for trying to reduce the uh, transmission of the flu. That flu is a a serious uh, infection for many people leads to a lot of death in the United States and around the world, and uh, that everyone should go out and get their get their flu vaccine every year. Is that uh, is that a fair summary? I think that's a very fair summary. Yes. Okay. Well, then can I can I then ask you one last question, which is is more of just a, a historical question, which is I my understanding is that um, you said that. Flu has been, uh, is most severe in those who are very young and, and very old. But my, my understanding is that every once in a while we have these very, very severe pandemic outbreaks, uh, like the, the one in 1918. Um, and those actually were, were most severe for those in, in uh, sort of their middle ages. Is that, first of all, is that correct? And if so, do we know why that was? So that's largely a correct statement. I guess you'd have to you'd have to tell me what you mean by middle ages. Yeah, I didn't want to define it because I didn't want to have to put myself either in or out of it. So, so you know, there have been uh, several flu pandemics in the last hundred years, but the one that 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 clearly has captured the the interest of historians and uh, you know his presence in many novels and fiction written during about the time. Uh, was the flu pandemic of 1918-1919, which uh, uh, through really interesting uh, work, has the vi that virus has been sequenced. It's known what the virus was. People went out and dug up bodies from uh, that had been buried in 1918, but wow. buried in the permafrost in Alaska, um, and where, where basically the material was frozen for the last 80 years and have, have basically recreated the virus and sequenced it. So we know exactly what virus caused that pandemic through really, uh, you know, ingenious work. Um, and, um, but we, uh, what you said is correct, that, that that pandemic is estimated to have killed somewhere in the range of 40 to 80 million people around the world when the world's population was a billion, billion and a half. Wow. So it was clearly an enormous uh, pandemic uh, that, as I said, a, a a, a, you know, has had an impact on, on, on life everywhere. Um, and interestingly, uh, the people most likely to die in that pandemic were people in their 20s and, and 30s, people of the, you know, most important economically, um, and as opposed to the very young and the very old. And um, we think the very old were probably protected in that pandemic because of exposure, perhaps in the 1880s. Uh, to a, a related virus, and they were largely immune. Uh, the infants, I'm not sure what there is, what what would account for that. But but the mortality was particularly high in people in their 20s and 30s, um, and uh, some of it was due to secondary bacterial infections. Uh, of course, there was no oxygen to give people. The therapeutic regimens available in the 1918-1919 time period were exceedingly limited. So some of it remains a bit of a mystery, um, but that's the, the specter that people raise, you know, about a potentially comparable, uh, devastating flu pandemic. It turns out that the last flu pandemic we had in 2009 was caused by a virus that wasn't as lethal, that's mm -hmm. but it still killed large numbers of people, but it, it wasn't of the 1918 variety.
Well, that's that's absolutely fascinating. I think that's a perfect place to leave things. So I'd really like to thank Dr. Engel for joining us on this episode. It's been really, really fascinating, and, and I have learned a lot. And I want to thank uh, Dr. Hearn for, for leading this conversation. We'd also like to thank Sue Bevan for producing the show. Before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is going to be this year in Boston in June. And it also gets you access to the SCR library, where you can find some really fantastic learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening, and we'll be back with another episode soon.